Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with how different municipalities are approaching recycling fees for retail around Metro Vancouver. Now, of course, in Vancouver... We got the mandatory 25 cent disposable cup fee, which coffee shops and restaurants must charge their customers. It is a mandatory fee. How much money is this raking in? Nobody knows for sure. It's got to be in the millions. It must be in the millions of dollars. Is it having any success? Are they actually reducing the number of paper cups going to the garbage dump? Have a listen to Vancouver's son, Susan Lazarick, you're talking about that on yesterday's show here. If there was a huge re- reduction, and it might be obvious somewhere, I think they might they might want to you know brag about that. So I'm not sure if if they, if if they don't know or if the if the reduction is is so poor that they they maybe don't want to release that that information. Yeah. Yeah. How about the measurables on this? What are their deliverables on this program? We don't know. We just know there's millions of bucks flowing for these these cup fees, though. That's for sure. They do it differently in other municipalities, including in Port Coquitlam. Let's discuss it now with POCO Mayor Brad West. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mayor West, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, so in Poco, you guys don't do this. There's no mandated cup fee and there's no bag fee there either, correct? That's correct. And, you know, actually, Mike, it's interesting. Uh, when Vancouver brought this in, uh, I got a heads up from some of our residents that uh, one of the fast food restaurants in town actually put a sign in their window saying that they were going to start charging people uh, 25 cents for reusable, uh, pardon me, for uh, uh, cups and, and paper bags uh, right. because of a city bylaw. So I went and had a little conversation with them because, of course, that's not a Port Coquitlam City bylaw. That's a Vancouver City bylaw. But you see some people looking to take advantage of what has happened in Vancouver and try and pass off uh, this fee as being uh, uh, because of a local government bylaw in a jurisdiction outside of Vancouver. Because, of course, as it is in Vancouver, the fee that's collected uh, yeah. stays with the business, uh, and right. there's no obligation that they use that for anything environmental. Yeah, now I remember this happening. This was an A&W burger joint, and they started charging a 25-cent cup fee. And uh, <laughs> so what was, So what did you do? You, you had your people go down there and have a talk to them, or...? Yeah, that I, I uh, sent uh, our bylaw team to go have a chat with them and uh, okay. just educate them on the fact, and, uh, you know... I, I hate to be a cynic. I kind of think they already knew oh. that Porco Quitlam uh, does not have such a bylaw. Right. Uh, you know what, Mike? It was just a cash grab. Uh, it mm. was uh, someone thinking there was an opportunity to uh, get a few more bucks out of their customers, and uh, and they did it when they didn't have to. And uh, they ended up apologizing, uh, yeah. as they should, and uh, and they are no longer and have not since uh, no. been charging people that fee. Right, and they also said that if anyone had gone to that particular burger joint in Poco and paid a 25-cent bag fee, that you should come back and get your money back. They'll give you your quarter back, you know, if you, know you, did, if I, you I, did pay. Mike, I actually heard from a few residents who took them up on that offer. 
Okay. Uh, and, and we're able to get um, some money back. And I know, you know, you can kind of dismiss it as, you know, okay, whatever, a quarter. Um, you know what? You go there a couple times, you know, this stuff adds up. And, oh, yeah. you know, we have to remember, you know, uh, not everyone, you know, not everyone can just uh, uh, dismiss an additional cost like that as being, you know, whatever. Um, for some people, uh, particularly people who are on fixed incomes, um, you know, every dollar counts. And, you know, I heard from one senior who is on a fixed income, a very low fixed income. And one of the, you know, the, the things that they enjoyed was being able to go to our local A&W. It's a hot spot with seniors. And yeah. to be able to, uh, you know, have a meal uh, there and, and and enjoy that on a weekly basis. And, you know, 25 cents um, was going to impact that person. So um, I know it, it's kind of easy to say, oh, yeah, whatever, 25 cents. Uh, but it, it does add up. Right. Okay. The 25 cent cup fee, the way that it's been rolled out in the municipality of Vancouver, it's meant to be a deterrent. So it's meant to say, well, you know, I'm sick and tired of paying an extra quarter for my coffee, so I'm going to bring my own cup with me to the restaurant next time. You're right. I'm not sure that's working. I mean, there's no, they haven't released any numbers on how many cups have been deterred from going to the landfill site. I, I suppose there's been some reduction, but you got to figure, man, there is still a ton of people who are paying this, this 25 cent cup fee, and they probably don't even know it. Like Susan Lazarek said this to me. Let me play this here for you and get your thoughts on it, Brad. So Susan Lazarek on yesterday's show, um, on the confusion around this cup fee, and here's what she had to say to me. There, there's also a lot of confusion over how it's applied and whether or not you get your discount, um, and it's supposed to be very clearly marked on your on your receipt but uh, a lot of people don't don't get a receipt yeah i mean i think a lot of people are just paying this site out of mind they don't even know they're paying it all they know is the price of their coffee's gone up a quarter anyway your thoughts uh, yeah mike let's get real there's <laughs> if this had resulted in some massive reduction in the use of of these cops or of the bags uh, you would have heard of that by now. People would be, you know, singing that from the mountaintops. Uh, this is like a lot of things. I think people get really frustrated. It's an, people are being nickel and dimed. It's a, it's a cash grab. And they dress it up as some big environmental act. You know, uh, from what I hear, you know, they have trouble getting the recycling picked up in Vancouver. Maybe that should be the priority. You know, if we want to uh, reduce... Uh, uh, you know, litter and uh, and these sort of things going to the wrong place. I'm all for that. Let's get the basics right. Let's pick up recycling um, rather than there. There is just this attitude uh, that permeates almost every level of government that uh, the answer is just to uh, whack people. Uh, yeah. But don't do it in a big way. Do it as a you know. Do it at a 25 cents because then yeah. you know yeah people are annoyed by it, but. Uh, you know, they just end up accepting it. But the other... um, I, I don't believe this is effective. I don't think it's accomplished anything other than uh, take money out of people's uh, wallets. The other thing I find kind of comical about it is the city of Vancouver has said, OK, the money goes to the retailers and they are encouraged. They are encouraged to spend that money on installing dishwashers so people can have like a cup share program and they can wash the dishes and re wash the cups and reuse them. I don't think there's a lot of evidence that 
a, a ton of uh, restaurants and coffee shops and fast food joints are suddenly installing dishwashers and people are bringing their own reusable cups in there or, or they're putting in a cup share program. I don't think that's happening. I, I think a lot of it is, do you think it's like, you call it a cash grab. You think that's what it is, right? Yeah, for sure. And it's uh, it's greenwashing. It's dressed up as something that's really good for the environment, but uh, I don't see it as being effective at, at all. And I, I really wonder where this stuff gets cooked up. It doesn't seem to be the real world because, you know, just think about, like most people, you know, yeah, maybe sometimes you have, you're going to be able to hang out in a coffee shop for, you know, a while. And I don't know, maybe you can go to the dishwasher and do all that stuff. But, you know, a lot of people, it's like, they're getting in and they're getting out and, you know, it, it, grabbing their coffee and go. I think of it, too, yeah. like on the on the fast food, the fact that they, they want to charge you to for a to-go bag. So, yeah. you know, I think about I've got my uh, my son and his friends and we're going to hit McDonald's after hockey, uh, their hockey game. And so, OK, what I'm supposed to take every one of those items that's coming through the, the drive through window with no bag. I, I mean, it's just like, you know, it, it gets kind of ridiculous. Uh, and again, it, it, it doesn't seem to be based in the reality of, of people's lives. And yes, you know what? Are there lots of things that we need to do to uh, reduce waste and all of that? Right. Absolutely. So maybe we should focus on the real priorities. Like I said, how about making sure that our recycling program is robust and it's actually the services provided at a at a high quality and is there and so people can use it. Uh, right. You know, in Port Coquitlam, uh, we're really proud of our uh, organics uh, program. You yeah. know, do the things that make it easier for people to do the right thing. And I think most people, a lot of people, will go and do that. But it's never, you know, the incentive, Mike. It's always the you know, we're going we're gonna to whack you. This is an opportunity to, to whack you to nickel and dime you. Mayor West, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. Let's talk about the manslaughter charges now against actor Alec Baldwin after the tragic shooting death on the set of his movie Rust. What a stunning development in this case. I've got Ken Harlew standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report from ABC News. This is a crime scene. Tonight, more than a year after a fatal accident during a rehearsal on the set of the movie Rust, actor Alec Baldwin and the film's armorer are now facing two counts each of involuntary manslaughter in the death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins. Why did you believe and ultimately decide that you had a strong enough case to bring charges against uh, both Hannah and Alec? This set was really unsafe. It was not being run well. They were not doing the things that they should have been doing in order to have a safety conscious and, and certainly with guns, a gun conscious movie set. There were lots of markers along the way where somebody should have said, this is not safe. Something needs to be done. I was shot holding the gun, yeah. Okay. According right. to court documents, both the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, and assistant director Dave Halls handled the gun before Baldwin, who claims that Halls said cold gun on the set, meaning no live rounds were being used. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Ken Harlow. Ken is a, a veteran of the movie and TV industry in Vancouver. He's a veteran props master. He's worked on lots of big budget films and TV shows in Vancouver, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ken, thank you very much for coming on. Good to be here. 
Hey, Ken, the last time we talked was in the immediate aftermath of, of this, this tragic death on this movie set that shocked the industry. And I yeah. remember talking to you at that time just how surprised and shocked people were by this. Now we see this, these charges against Alec Baldwin in the case. Ken, does that surprise you that he has been charged here? Um, I'm surprised in, only in that, um, I mean, he's, He's the actor that, you know, obviously pulled the trigger, according to the, uh, the reports. Uh, I'm a little I'm more surprised that others weren't charged. Now, I, I understand that the uh, that the assistant director, the A.D., took some sort of plea deal. Uh, right. He he escaping probably the same kind of charges because he he was the one who handed it to Alec Baldwin and uh the assistant director in any set is basically uh, amongst all of their other uh, duties for first and foremost, they're the safety officer. And uh, so the fact that he would hand a, a weapon to anyone was just outrageous to me. And I'm also a little, uh, I failed to understand why other producers and the production manager weren't charged considering based on reports that i heard that uh there was a history of uh of different incidents just on that on that um uh picture but as well as uh the they were warned not to hire this armor from my understanding um and she was uh, i understand she wasn't very experienced but i also heard that uh they were warned off hiring her in the first place uh because of other incidents so I think there's some responsibility there. I don't, you know, I can't speak on the law, particularly about law in New Mexico, but I would think there'd be some responsibility there. Now, I will say, um, Alec Baldwin was a producer on the show, but a lot of times this this is a vanity title, or it's a it's it's a vanity title along with a fee in order to get the movie made. So I, I'm not sure how involved he was in the production. So I'm a little. I'm a little amazed that he was charged with the same thing as yeah. the armor. To be to be quite honest, and, yeah, you're, uh, you're you're not alone. I mean, a lot of other people are expressing a, a similar surprise there. Like you heard in that report there, Ken, where Baldwin had claimed that he was handed this gun on the set, and he said the person who handed him the gun said, "Cold gun, cold gun." What what does that mean? Well, it means uh, that it's safe and 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 clear to be used and, uh, and it's it it doesn't have any kind of load uh like a blank load normally it would be a blank load if if anything i i just i'm still trying to wrap my head around the whole idea that there was live ammunition on this set i i'm just to, i'm still flabbergasted that that what happened and was allowed and 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 people knew about it and that that would that should have shut the production down right then and there and, yeah. and got gotten a new armor having live ammunition yeah, well I'll, I'll be honest i've been in this business for decades i don't want to say how long because it's going to age me but i've been in doing this for a very long time and the very first uh picture that i ever worked on actually was a western with kirk douglas and james coburn now um those actors were really um really adept at firearms and they'd done a lot of westerns themselves and i would want to go hand them their guns they would uh, they would take them and cycle them through twice, uh, pulling the hammer back and, and and dry firing it twice around the cylinder, so twelve times to be uh, to in, ensure that 
there was nothing in there. That was these are seasoned pros who have done you know worked on a lot of westerns, and that's kind of you know I I had a great deal of respect for them for taking that. Now I don't know what Alec Baldwin's experience is, but uh, I'm just really surprised that he would just take the word first of all of an AD who's not a weapons handler take take his um, his word for it that the weapon was was clear and safe to to be used. And, uh, but as to whether that translates into liability for manslaughter, I, I, I'm still a little confused about that. Yeah, you heard that in this case, Alec Baldwin is facing a charge. The armorer on the film has also been charged with involuntary manslaughter. What does an armorer do? What is the responsibility there, Ken? Well, first and foremost, the armorer is, uh, responsible for, for maintaining the weapons. And and then uh, servicing the weapons on set. Uh, in my the case of in our industry, uh, we do. You know, I've worked on a lot of lot of shows that had a lot of action. Uh, you know, uh, worked on the Arrowverse. I worked on Battlestar Galactica and, and uh, X Files. All had a lot of gunplay in. And whether it was one gun or twenty guns, I would always hire an armor because I want I want someone who's sole responsibility is handling that gun they don't have any other duties to you you're not you're not setting out director's chairs and then and then you know uh, and handling handling food in a food scene and then uh, the gun is a second thought that weapon should be uh the responsibility of one person and one person only and uh that's that's how i handle it um but I, oh. I keep I keep going going back to the fact that there was live ammunition on set, and I don't know how yeah. that happens. But every film I've worked on, and, and I worked usually on on, on uh, studio pictures or studio series. Whenever you sign your deal memo, you acknowledge that you will not bring a firearm onto set, and you will not bring ammunition onto set. And it's it's that's not just the prop master that signs that; everybody signs that. Now that comes from you know the, the studios are in America, and that's a, that's more of a gun culture down there so they want to make sure that you know people who who feel their right to uh open carry or whatever you can't do that on their on site there um so it, it would never be an issue here because we just don't have that kind of gun culture here but i still don't understand even if you're in that in that you know new mexico it's you know it's uh it's cowboys and you know yeah and uh but even how you could possibly be allowed to have live ammunition anywhere near that set um that live ammunition that fits into the guns that you're using particularly that's really a shocking revelation here in in the case ken last question for you just got a couple of minutes here this event has this event provoked any changes and sort of safety rules on movie sets um from what i hear i haven't been involved in any production since then that required firearms but from what I from what I hear, uh, it's it's a little stricter, and and uh, you know people are talking about you know Dwayne Johnson's talking about you know uh, he's not going to have any gun, real guns on his productions, and they're talking about uh, banning um, guns all to real guns altogether. It's not it's not the answer. It, it, the answer is safety, and if and I, and I think I said it to you before when I, you interviewed me. It, we have several several safety uh, guidelines, and if any one of those was followed on this particular set, 
this would not have happened. Right. You didn't have to follow every single one of them. If any one of them was followed, this wouldn't have happened. But the main one being not having live ammunition on set. Uh, you know, we use real guns. I've been using real guns on set for for decades uh, and pr- some pretty formidable weapons. And we've never had an accident like this. And it's 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 because we would never in a million years uh, have live ammunition that fit those guns on set. Ken, it's great to get your perspective on this with your knowledge and your experience. Thank you very much for coming on today. My pleasure. All right, we continue to talk about the Alec Baldwin case here now and the charges of involuntary manslaughter against the actor after the tragic shooting death on the set of his movie, Rust. I've got U.S. trial attorney Lynn McCraw standing by to discuss this case. First, have a listen to this here. This is Alec Baldwin speaking to TV host George Stephanopoulos. And you'll hear him say here that... Effectively, he says that the gun went off by itself here. Listen carefully to what he says here. It wasn't in the script for the trigger to be pulled. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. I I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. I have dreams about this constantly now. I wake up constantly where, where guns are going off. Alec Baldwin there. Alec Baldwin's actually suing the armorer on the set and the movie crew. He's suing them for giving him the gun in the first place, but he is the one who ends up being charged here with involuntary manslaughter. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Lynn McCraw. Lynn is a trial attorney. Very pleased to welcome him. Lynn, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet, Lynn. Thank you for doing it. Are you surprised, first of all, that Alec Baldwin has been charged in this case? I'm not surprised when I looked at the uh, at some of the evidence that the uh, prosecutors have looked at. Uh, I'm not surprised at all that they've charged him with involuntary manslaughter. Why is that? What evidence jumped out at you? Well, several things uh, to begin with. He was a producer on the on the the movie film, and, and in addition to that, one of the things that was really interesting is the fact that there have been two or there were at least two prior discharges of firearms on the set before this occurred. Uh, that to me is a staggering fact. That's a fact that is, uh, that should let every, everybody know that there's, that there's a problem on that set, uh, before they were dealing with firearms. And, you know, anytime you have a discharge of a firearm, uh, that's unexpected, uh, that is going to, uh, to really, really impact everything going forward. And that's a, that's a fact I think that's going to be very, uh, difficult for uh, Mr. Baldwin's attorneys to deal with. Baldwin's lawyer has called this a, a miscarriage of justice. How do you expect this to play out? What will you be watching for as this goes through the legal system? Well, several things. To begin with, uh, the prosecutors have actually charged two different counts. Uh, one carries a, a, a much higher penalty. I suspect what's going on here is that they're giving themselves room for the lesser included, the lesser included offense of involuntary manslaughter. Even that, that one, that charge uh, carries with it a minimum sentence of one year that cannot be suspended or deferred when there's a use of a firearm involved. Uh, I suspect that that is probably what they're ultimately angling for. One of the things that I think is going to be the critical, the most critical thing about the, the underlying part of this case is the prosecutor has to show that Mr. Baldwin was guilty of criminal negligence. 
And, and in every state in the union in, in the United States, that's defined a little differently. Most of them are fairly similar, but in New Mexico where this occurred, uh, they have to, the, the, when I say they, the prosecutor has to show foreseeability of danger to the victim, which is uh, not going to be an issue here because anybody knows you point a gun at somebody, there's a foreseeable danger of, uh, of somebody getting hurt by the gun, right? Yeah. The second part is the, is the more, uh, the more daunting task. You have to show a substantial and unjustifiable risk of doing so. Uh, Mr. Baldwin will defend this, saying that that first of all, there's not a, there wasn't a substantial risk because he had an armorer that was supposed to be making sure that that there were dummy that there were only dummy rounds in and that sort of thing. Uh, he's going to have to to uh, really rely on on his on his statement that uh, that he didn't pull the trigger though. Because anytime you pull a trigger, there's there's a there's a risk, right? Uh, so uh, he's he's really stuck in that in the, in those in those facts. Uh, that's that's the st- the legal standard that has to be met. The substantial and unjustifiable risk is what uh, the jury is going to have yeah. to weigh. And and anytime that you're dealing with a uh, with a with a celebrity, yeah. uh, I. In my experience, and I haven't dealt with, with several uh, cases over the years with celebrities, uh, it's like people already have an idea of, of what these folks, uh, who they are and, and how they act, right? So any new evidence that they get, they filter it through what they already think about the, the, this particular person. So in my mind, uh, the, uh, the biggest hurdle that the prosecutors have in this case is going to be showing that that Mr. Baldwin's con- conduct is something that is uh, that uh, is is so is so substantial and unjustifiable as far as the risks that it, that it, that it gives to to the to the person that was injured that was killed rather that um, that he should be criminally held criminally accountable for it I think okay. he, he is in serious he's serious legal jeopardy for sure Okay, well, we are following, we'll follow it closely with it, along with everyone else, to say the least. Lynn, thank you very much for your analysis today. I appreciate it a lot. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Let's talk about Canada's revolving door justice system now. And in cases like this one, this is not an exaggeration. This is the classic catch and release system here. Now, we've talked about this particular case on the show before. Francis Boyvin, uh, this is the guy who was charged with stealing two expensive sculptures from a Vancouver art gallery a few weeks ago. As soon as police saw the security video of this guy, they knew exactly who he was, and he he was easy to track down. Why? Because he has racked up 115 criminal convictions, not charges, convictions. Catch and release over and over and over again. I've got conservative MP Tracy Gray standing by to discuss. Have a listen to this report first from Global News. The $30,000 piece was right here. And then the other one was right here. Security video shows a man walking out with a sculpture on Friday. The next day, a man walks out with another piece. This time, he's in and out in four seconds. This guy's got balls, you know. Dror briefly followed the man and called 911. Within seconds or minutes, literally, we had the police in here. 
Okay, I've talked to the Vancouver Police Department about this case. As soon as they saw the video, they knew precisely who this man was. They were able to pick him up at his home. 115 criminal convictions. Why? Why? Because he's feeding a drug addiction. Of course that's why it's happening. Let's discuss it now with Conservative MP Tracy Gray from Kelowna. Very pleased to welcome her. Tracy, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. Appreciate thanks it. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for doing this. And and I'm very interested in your private members bill that you've introduced in the House of Commons that's that's aimed at these type of cases. So let's talk about this bill that you put in front of the House in, in Ottawa. It, it's actually called the the End End the Revolving Door Act, right? Yes, absolutely. The End the Revolving Door Act. It's Bill C two eighty three. And it's a private member's bill, and I'll, I'll maybe just describe really quickly what that is. Um, sure. So as, as members of Parliament, what happens after every election is literally everyone's name gets put into a box, and then they're pulled out. And that's the order that people, uh, that members of Parliament can do a private member's bill. Now, if your number is very, very high, like number 250, your chances are, are kind of slim with being able to, to have a private member's bill. So... So I was really uh, honoured with with having a a number that's quite high up. And uh, so this is actually before Parliament right now. And so what what this private member's bill will do is it it, it does two things. First of all, it creates a framework for the Commissioner of the Correctional Service of Canada to be able to designate all or part of a federal correctional facility as an addiction treatment facility. The second part is it amends the criminal code to support a two-stream sentencing process in federal penitentiaries. So if convicted, um, uh, and if if individuals meet certain parameters at the time of sentencing, a judge could offer the choice to be sentenced to participate in a mental health assessment and in addictions treatment inside a federal penitentiary while they serve their sentence. Okay, this is why I think this is very interesting, because in so many of these cases we've heard about, like these notorious cases where people are committing like literally hundreds and hundreds of crimes over and over and over again, it's a drug addiction issue, it's a mental health issue, or it's both. Is is that what you're seeing in Kelowna as well? You know, we're, we're seeing that in Kelowna, we're seeing that, of course, in Vancouver, we're seeing it across BC, and we're seeing it across Canada. And so just to give you some of, some of the, the, the facts on this, the, the statistics. So in 2015, uh, Correctional Service Canada uh, did a study which showed that over 70% of people that are admitted to federal uh, penitentiaries are suffering from uh, substance use issues. As well, the last report done on recidivism in federal penitentiary showed that 38% of people that were released reoffended within five years. And so, uh, so obviously, there, there's an issue there. Um, I'll, I'll say as well, there, there, there was another private member's bill, a uh, conservative private member's bill, that, that uh, was successful in the last parliament. It was Bill C-228. And uh, it was to establish a, f- a federal framework to reduce recidivism. So that work is being done right now. And so my private member still really does uh, tie in nicely with the work of, of, of that other private member's bill and the work that's being done uh, right now. Okay, so the two-stream sentencing process that you described there where a judge could offer a, a choice here to be sentenced and you could take part in a mental health assessment or, or receive addictions treatment 
in in jail, right? While you're in jail, like, are is there not are there not mental health services and addiction treatment in in jails now? Well, there there are different uh, services that are offered, but it's it's really not curative. Uh, it's really not curative treatment. And and for all of the people uh, that I've talked to that work in the criminal justice system across the ca- the country, um, there there is a huge gap. It's not curative treatment. It's not addiction treatment and recovery. And so, uh, for example, you know, we've got support from uh, Native Counseling Services of Alberta, from uh, uh, Canadian Families and Corrections Network, uh, from uh, business improvement areas as well. There's the business improvement areas of BC, and they represent 70 downtown and Main Street districts uh, across, British, across British Columbia and of course a lot of them are small businesses they're right in the front lines of seeing mental health and addiction play out on streets you know I was sitting with uh, with someone who uh, is with an organization and they're right on the front lines when people are released from from penitentiaries and they said you know they're released they come to them and then they say well now maybe we'll deal with your addiction issue why is yeah. you know and they said to me why is this being dealt with uh, from a healthcare perspective, while they're in the penitentiary there for uh, sometimes many years, and and so this is really about helping people. It's about helping their families, and it's about helping the communities that they're released back into. Speaking of Tracy Gray, Conservative MP for Kelowna Lake Country. Okay, it's an interesting idea. What if you have an offender, a chronic offender, who's offered this choice? Maybe the judge says, "Look." You can receive this treatment, mental health treatment, addiction treatment in jail, but they don't, you know, they, they don't want, they don't want treatment. They don't want to go into drug treatment. Then what do you do? Well, you know, ultimately this, this, this would have to be a choice. Uh, however, a lot of the people that I've talked to that work uh, in criminal justice say that there's, there's a lot of people that, that do want help. And if the opportunity is there and, and they see the opportunity, uh, they would, you know, they would expect a lot of people to participate in this. I think that this is just another tool in the toolkit. Yeah. We know that uh, the whole mental health and, and addiction crisis that we're dealing with is very complex. And so this is just uh, one more tool in the toolkit that can hopefully help people uh, get the help that they need. You know, every Canadian deserves uh, to live in a safe community, and every person struggling with addiction deserves an opportunity to pursue pursue recovery. And so this is one opportunity uh, that could be be offered to people. And, um, and, you know, I I was talking to someone as well recently that um, uh, apparently... Years ago, uh, provincially, there was a pilot project that had addiction treatment and recovery, uh, and it was very short-lived, and he ended up going through that. He came out uh, in recovery, and he has now had a life of serving, helping other people. And he says, I wish that this would have continued on, and I wish it had existed in federal penitentiaries as well. So uh, we've seen how the success of this can um, can really help people, and, and it's just another tool that we should be that we should be doing. Okay, we're following it closely. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. I do appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. All right. And we continue to talk about a revolving door justice system. And I don't know how you call it anything else when you take a look at cases like this guy who we've talked about in the show earlier this month who stole the two expensive sculptures from a Vancouver art gallery worth nearly $40,000. 115 criminal convictions. Convictions. And we've heard a lot of these type of cases, just the revolving door over and over and over again, catch and release, 
convicted of a crime, you're released, you commit more crimes, rinse and repeat. What is the answer to this? Let's discuss it now further with my guest, Eleanor Sturko, liberal MLA, Surrey South. Pleased to welcome Eleanor back to the show. Eleanor, thank you for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, you're a former police officer, so it's it's always great to get your perspective on this. When we hear about these type of cases, and there there are many other similar notorious examples, you know, guys who have racked up hundred like literally hundreds of convictions. What are we? What is the public supposed to take away from that? Like the system's not working. Well, that's certainly what we're hearing from people. Their frustration. We we know that people are losing faith in the justice system. We see their comments. We we receive their emails at our constituency offices, and you see more and more citizens groups across the province um, springing up where people are sort of taking justice into their own hands, you know, where they want to have citizen patrol groups. But even more frightening than that, I would say, is that you occasionally see people talking about vigilantism, which we certainly don't want to have. So the public is certainly frustrated and, you know, we do have to make some changes. Right. What do you think should be done? Well, I was listening to the MP from Kelowna talking about the changes that they're making in the federal correction system. So, of course, that would apply to people who are sentenced to two years plus a day. So anything under two years remains in BC Corrections with us. And we do have some treatment options here in BC Corrections. And, of course, we also already have sort of an ability to have a two-tiered system because we have things like the Vancouver Drug Court. And again, that is an option for individuals. It's a voluntary program for people. And in some cases, you know, they may choose not to participate because they would be facing a 14 to 16 month program of participating versus potentially, you know, doing a stint of 30 days in jail. So it really does come down to a person's willingness and want, you know, of making a change in their life if that's something that they're they're capable of doing at this time. But, you know, we have to continue to ask for that accountability within our justice system. Um, the Lepard report talked a lot about um, the emboldening of individuals who had been heavily involved in the justice system when they're not charged with breaching their court-ordered conditions or being um, held to account for things like failing to appear in court and not abiding by curfews or going into no-go areas. That's when people don't feel that it matters and they'll continue to um, have behaviors that perhaps are putting the rest of the public at risk. Yeah, I think that was a really interesting point you made there that some of these services, they're available now. There are sort of diversion programs that are available. But if you have a situation where someone who's a a chronic offender committing crime after crime after crime and slave to a, a drug habit does not want to go into rehab or treatment, then what do you do? I mean, you know, you can't keep people locked up forever for property crimes, correct? No, that's right. And and the thing is, is that, yes, choice comes into it. And whether or not a person is a willing participant in their own recovery and mental health recovery, addictions recovery, is going to ultimately be up to them. And the more willing they are to participate, the more chance of success that they have. But I think one of the biggest faults of our system as we currently have it is, is that there's actually not enough recovery and treatment options available for people at the time when they want it and need it. You know, outside of our justice system, as a police officer, the biggest complaint that I heard when attending homes that were either trashed by someone in psychosis 
or having to comfort the loved ones and family members of someone who had succumbed to drug toxicity. It was that they had been waiting for treatment and they couldn't get into publicly funded treatment or they couldn't afford it. You know, they can't afford the thirty and $40,000 that it will cost them to get into a private treatment center. And so the key to us really cracking, you know, even with regard to people being involved in the criminal justice system, it's cracking the cycle and letting people access treatment when they're truly ready to have it. You can't force people to do something they're not willing to do because they're going to bucket at every stage. But there is way more people on waiting lists right now, Mike, than people that we would actually have to force into treatment. There's people dying, waiting on waiting lists to get into treatment right now. We just have one minute left. It sounds like the answer then is what? There has to be a greater public investment, government money going into treatment recovery beds? 100% access. It's all about access. So whether it's through the criminal justice system, but you know that's still a small percentage of people. The greater need is for people who actually are not involved in criminal justice um, issues right now. And we are just, this government's going as fast as a rocket ship towards decriminalization. It's something like 10 days away. And yet they're slow as molasses in January when it comes to providing treatment and access and beds that people need today. Thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, I, I appreciate a lot. Eleanor Sturko there, Liberal MLA, Surrey South. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.